our hearts, to open our ears so that we can be both good hearers and doers of the word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jesus says, but, but I say to you who hear, I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons and daughters of the Most High. For God is kind to the ungrateful and to the wicked. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. After uh, a series of um, an unfortunate appointments that I had made at places like Sports Cuts, um, I decided that uh, uh, from that point on, I needed to go to a salon. This is like one of those, for some reason, uh, embarrassing secrets of mine. I mean, I've, some people know about that. Um, that I go to a salon to get my hair done, to get it cut. Um, so I'm just owning it. Um, now, one of the interesting things about the salon is that I just feel like a fish out of water in that environment. Like, I don't, I don't know, and I think I've told you guys a little bit about this before. I don't know exactly how to engage in that environment. Like, the, the rules of that social space are just odd enough for me to feel really uncomfortable um, especially if I'm new. And of course, it's also a very intimate and personal environment. And so when I sit down in that chair uh, and the stylist tries to talk to me, like I, I really don't know what to do. And that, of course, is magnified um, by the nature of my work. Um, because my experience is that um, as soon as the stylist asks me what I do and I try to explain what I do or I say that I'm a pastor, the temperature in the room changes and the nature of the conversation changes. Because suddenly that stylist feels like that... that um, either he or she is no longer free to talk to me like that they were initially talking to me. Have any of you guys experienced this before? Um, you've never experienced it? No, never. <laughs> um, well, it's, it's an experience I've, I, I've had. Um, so I've gotten to know uh, my stylist here in Fayetteville, and, and uh, she's, she's been great. She's been um, more or less open to the fact that, that I'm a pastor Uh, and that I do churchy things, and she's also been inquisitive about that reality. I mean, definitely uh, every time, there was a a time when she would forget that I was, and then she would ask me again, and suddenly she would stop cussing, right? Uh, But but she she remembers now, and she's inquisitive about it, and she's the kind of person um, who we would probably call an unchurched person, uh, but a person who, having grown up in the South, having grown up in Arkansas, um, uh, was exposed to all kinds of churchy stuff. Like, you know, you grow up in Arkansas and you can't escape that kind of thing. She was in and out of church a little bit um, as a kid and as a teenager, but is mostly an unchurched person. So she's inquisitive. She's asked me questions. And she's asked me questions about um, the kind of church that I'm a pastor at. And I don't know if you've ever been in this position before, but um, as I've, um, it's a hard thing because, you know, we don't, we're not Baptists or Methodists or Pentecost, I mean, some of the main kind of churches. And so it's a kind of a, an odd thing to try to explain, like, that we're Anglican and I'm an Anglican pastor. But what I've noticed is that I've tried to, to respond to her questions to describe our identity. It's been really difficult to engage with her in terms that don't set up who our enemies are. 
So, I mean, you guys know a little bit about our history. So it's like, well, we're Episcopal sort of. You may be familiar with Episcopal churches, but we're not. We're not any, anymore. Well, but but so, but how are you different than than, than the Bible churches, or how are you different? You know. So then I try to engage with her. Well, are you are you affirming or non-affirming? Well, I know that the you know, and so it, we. She goes down this list, and she's not only am I struggling to to articulate our identity to her in a way that doesn't set up the framework of enemies, but she's also engaging with me uh, with the terms, with the framework that's like, well, who are you for and against? Who's the them to you? Have you been in a situation like this? And it's hard. It's hard. Uh, the hard news in in our culture is that. Is that in, in this in this age in, in North America that Christianity, the identity of being a Christian, that identity is almost synonymous with having certain enemies. Oh, you're a Christian. Like you're the ones who don't think this or don't believe this or or you stand against those people. It's almost synonymous with having certain enemies. The reality is that we live in a social system. Bless you. You gonna be alright? <laughs> <clears throat> the hazards of being in a small church <laughs> with even fewer people here tonight. So it's just like, oh, he's sneezing. <laughs> we live in a social system. We live in a social system that's an enemy-making machine. We live in a social system that's an enemy-making machine. And, and by enemies, enemies here I mean uh, enemies are, are anybody any person or a group of people who pose a threat to our identity or who pose a threat to our pursuit or possession of a certain kind of blessed life. They're threatening to us. And, and sort of the irony in this, in this uh, enemy-making machine is that um, certain groups, or certain people or certain groups of people are simultaneously a threat to our identity, but we also don't know who we are without having those enemies. Who are we if we're not the ones who are against this? Well, who are we? Well, we're the people who aren't that. We live in a, in a, in a social system that's an enemy-making machine. And so what that looks like is we all start, we gather under a banner. Like, a, like, imagine a banner, and it's got, you know, there's a title to the banner. You're this or you're that. You gather under a banner, and by gathering under the banner, you're for this or you're against that. We're this and not those people. We gather under the banner, and by gathering under the banner, we, we immediately create who we're for and who we're against, who we are and who we're not, who is us and who is them. We live in a world that generates, that produces this, this us and them dynamic. We live in a world that produces enemies. And so we gather under these banners. Are you Democrat? Are you Republican? Are you conservative or liberal? Are you Black Black Lives Matter? Are you Blue Lives Matter? Are you All Lives Matter? Are you affirming or not affirming? Are you Catholic or are you Protestant? Who are the enemies? Is it the immigrants? Is Is it your siblings? Is it the person at work who's competing for the promotion that you're after? We live in a world... That produces enemies. And even more than this, is that this enemy-making machine is part of a larger consumer machine. 
A, a large machine that just, that just presses us further into making a commodity, making an object out of everything and every person. And so everything and every person is only as good to us as they fulfill our self-interest. And so in, in, this, in this same machine that makes enemies, it also, uh, it also makes exchange-based relationships. Produces a world of exchange where, where you, are, you either are or you aren't uh, a commodity that helps fulfill my self-interest. And so you're only as good for me as you can do things for me, as you can increase my sense of self-worth or, or whatever. We live in an enemy-making machine. An exchange-based, a system of exchange-based relationships where it all boils down to exchange. What, what can you give for me? What can I get from you? What can I get you to give from me? Or what are you trying to take from me? What are you trying to take away from me? I don't know how to be with you if you're going to threaten my sense of self-interest. Have you felt this? Do you experience the confusion of what it looks like to, to be a Christian in a world where Christianity is almost synonymous with this? Well, Christ the King, on this eighth Sunday of Epiphany, we embrace the good news of what Christ reveals. And what Christ reveals is that God is not saving the world by making enemies. God is not saving the world by making enemies, but God is transforming enemies into family. With Christ's self-giving love. Christ, God is not saving the world by making enemies, but God is transforming enemies into family with love, with Christ's love. And because of this, in this act, Christ has opened up a new way of life for us where we can live without enemies and love beyond exchange. Christ the King, the good news is that Christ has opened up a new way of life for us in this world of enemy-making machine where we can live without enemies and love beyond exchange. This is the new world, the new community, the new way of life that Jesus is inviting his disciples into there at the end of Luke chapter 6. We've seen at Luke chapter 6 that Jesus comes declaring good news. He comes declaring gospel. He comes declaring that blessed are those who are poor and powerless, that the kingdom of God actually belongs to the poor and the powerless. And in so doing, when Jesus is announcing uh, that the kingdom of God belongs to the poor and the powerless, he's actually shattering, this is what we talked about last week, he's actually shattering the illusion that the world offers certain systems of blessing. He shatters the illusions of these, these false symbols of blessing that the world offers. And so what we see here in Luke chapter 6, there at the end of Luke chapter 6, is that when Jesus comes shattering the illusion, turning the world upside down, turning blessing upside down, turning what the blessed life looks like and who it belongs to, when he comes turning it upside down and shattering the illusion of the world system of blessing, he comes opening then a new way of life. For all who would hear his words to enter. And so he says it to his disciples, to those gathered there around him. And he says it to us today. I say to those who hear. I say to those who hear. Love your enemies. 
So this new way of life that opens is just simply this. It's a life of actively loving enemies and doing good without exchange. This is what is described there in our gospel reading. That if it's true, if it's true that the kingdom of God belongs, that it's breaking forth among the poor and the powerless, if it belongs to the poor and powerless, if that's what the kingdom of God is like, then the community that Jesus' disciples are invited to enter, that their identity is primarily characterized by the love of enemies and doing good without exchange. Now let's just let this sink in. I just want to let that sink in for a minute. That that is how Jesus chooses to describe the primary identity of his disciples. Is that the primary identity, the primary thing of what it means to be a Christian, to be a, to be a Christ follower, the primary implication of what it means to receive the good news, the gospel that he's proclaiming, the primary behavioral identity is that his disciples would love enemies. Gospel people love enemies and resist exchange-based relationships. There it is. One, one theologian who is familiar uh, with what it looks like to suffer under the hand of, of enemies, a, a theologian who was um, a part of all the upheaval in Eastern Europe, in the Soviet bloc of Eastern Europe. Um, he says, if you take out love your enemies, you unchristianize the faith. This is just plain from what Jesus says here. If you take out love your enemies, you unchristianize the faith. But the, the key thing that I want us to see, that I want to draw our attention to about this passage, is that what Je- the new way of life that Jesus is inviting us into here, is that he isn't just saying, like, here's a good thing that you can do. Like, if you want to be a good Christian, then you need to try harder to be nice to the people who are your enemies, and then be a little bit more generous. Like, maybe you should loan money to your brother-in-law who probably won't ever pay you back. It may include those things, but what Jesus is saying is so much bigger than that. It's so much bigger than just this, like, moralistic, check the box, well, I was kind to the person who was mean to me. It may include that, but it's so much bigger than that. Because it's so much bigger than that, because what Jesus is saying, and, and this is what we see, that it comes on the heels of the announcement that the gospel breaks forth among the poor and powerless, is that the conditions have changed. The conditions that create a system of enemies and exchange has changed. Jesus is transforming the conditions. Jesus is transforming the situations in which we find ourselves having enemies. Because most of us, most of us come by this honestly. Most of us don't wake up in the morning thinking, how do, I, how do I make enemies today? How do I operate out of exchange in my relationships today? Most of us enter into that and we're sucked into the machine that produces enemies and produces exchange because we don't know that we've been liberated from the conditions that put us into that situation. Christ has transformed the conditions that make us into enemies and consumers so that we can live without enemies. Christ isn't just saying that we're going to be kind to enemies, but he's actually saying that he's bringing a a kingdom that transforms the conditions that, that create enemies. So he's saying now we can live without enemies and love beyond exchange. And so here's the conditions. This is the logic. If the world's system of blessing, that's what we talked about last week, this, this system of blessing that continues to lift up uh, the powerful, 
those with status, um, the proud, and continues to, to keep marginalized the powerless and the weak and the poor. That, that the world's system of blessing creates enemies and makes consumers. That's what the world's system of blessing does. To be caught in bondage to pursuing these false sources of blessing creates enemies. And so what Jesus is saying is that if, if we do not live dependent any longer on these false systems of blessing, then we are freed from treating one another as objects that either threaten our, our uh, possession and pursuit of the blessed life, or that, or that have to use other people to fulfill our desire for the blessed life. Jesus is saying if those conditions have been changed, then we no longer need to live with enemies or in this consumer-based system. So there's this interesting development that happens even here in Luke's gospel because we see earlier in chapter 1 that Zechariah, some of you guys may be familiar with Zechariah's prayer, um, when after uh, John is born, Zechariah's son John the Baptist is born, um, Zechariah speaks for the first time and he prays this prayer. And one of the things that Zechariah says in his prayer is that he, he says that God will deliver us from our enemies and from the hands of all who hate us. But what we see about that is that what the nature of God's deliverance from enemies is, is that God, the way that God is delivering his people from their enemies is he's not further entrenching his people within the hostility. He's not delivering people from enemies by creating more enemies, by creating more us versus them. But what God is doing, the big surprise, the big, the big uh, epiphany, the big reveal, is that, Christ is, is that God in Christ is actually putting to death the very hostility that creates enemies. He's transforming the systems in which we are addicted to a system of blessing that puts us at distance from God and others and that has us create enemies who threaten our sense of blessing and who put us into these consumer-based relationships where, where people are only as good as we can get things from them. God is transforming the lines of hostility. This is actually a fulfillment of, of what the, the prophets talked about. This is a fulfillment of what the prophet Isaiah talked about when he said that a time will come when God will return and you will beat your swords into plowshares. A time will come when God returns and brings the blessing and the fullness in, their, in his kingdom that you'll be able to beat your swords into plowshares. Because the conditions in which enemies are created, in which people have to war with one another for blessing, or turn one another into objects, those conditions will be fulfilled in Christ. The hostility will be put to death. So catch this. Catch what's going on here. Is that the main identity marker, the main boundary marker that clarifies the identity of Jesus' disciples, loving those who love enemies, that, that a community that habitually practices that main identity and boundary marker, marker, the community that habitually practices that, actually, it erases the boundaries. Are you tracking with me? <laughs> that the more we go about loving our enemies, the more we go about extending good to others without expectation of return, the more the lines of who is us and, the, and who is them begin to break down. That the very core of what it means to live, the very, the very uh, 
the clarity of identity of what it means to be Jesus' disciples, the practice of that breaks down boundaries. It, it makes fuzzy the lines between, if we're loving our enemies, it makes it really hard to tell the difference between who's an enemy and who's a friend. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus is inviting us into, is the breakdown of these social systems that, that create enemies and that make stratifications based on status. And he's inviting people into a radical refusal to distinguish between enemies and friends. That's the new community that Jesus is inviting his people into. And he's, he's doing this in the midst of a particular uh, social situation in his day called the client-patron system. This was, this was a, a, a system of uh, like the haves and the have-nots in Jesus' day. Uh, the patrons were those the haves, those poor, the powerful, um, the elite, those with status. They would uh, create these um, a quid pro quo, I do this for you, you do this for me relationship with the clients, with those who were lower in honor and status and wealth and power. And it was this, uh, I do this for you, you do this for me, I scratch your back, you scratch mine kind of relationship that continued to perpetuate the distance between those who had all the power and those who didn't have the power. It kept the clients in a constant sense of poverty and dependence. And even that, it meant that in Jesus' day in this client-patron relationship, I wouldn't even go into relationship with you unless I felt like that you could do something that would increase my honor. And so there was a whole social... Like, the daily fabric of daily life was built around this system in Jesus' day. And so Jesus is coming, and, and he's proclaiming the kingdom of God, and he's blowing up even that very fabric of daily life, saying that I'm going to flip... To, to be a part of, of my community is to flip that upside down so that you can live without enemies and you can live with one another, not on the basis of this client-patron relationship, not doing good to those who do good to you um, or not doing good to those who don't good, do good to you, but actually treating one another like family. This is what Jesus is getting at in verses 32 through 34 when he says, what good is it if you do good to those who do good to you? What good is it to do good to those who only retweet, retweet you? Or I don't know if that contemporizes it. Maybe not. Jesus comes to disrupt this system. And so all of this, this is key. All of this isn't just good advice that Jesus is giving. Jesus isn't just like giving his version of the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Because what we see is that Jesus' do unto others as you would have them do unto you is actually live as God would live. Because the big reveal here is that to love your enemies is to do exactly what God does. Because at the heart of the gospel is the reality that while we were still sinners, Romans 5, right? For those of you who are familiar with the Romans road. It's like step three on the Romans road. While we were still sinners, while we were still enemies, while we were enemies of God, Paul says, we were reconciled. At the heart of the gospel is the revelation that God does not transform the world by making enemies, but that God is transforming the world by loving enemies, by turning enemies into family. And so to do this, to live into this, is not to just like do some moral version of the golden rule, but it's actually to enter into the very life of God, to receive God's forgiveness. To be received as, as a son or a daughter and a friend of God, formerly an enemy of God, is to be caught up into that reality and then to live in light of it. To love enemies is, is to do what God does. 
It's at the very heart of God to love enemies. And all of this, this love of enemies, this love of enemies um, is actually living in hope. Uh, Christians are supposed to be people who are characterized by hope. To love enemies is to practice hope. This is what Paul, or, or, uh, Jesus is getting at there in verse 38 when he, when he has that kind of fun, poetic phrase where he says, Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. Jesus is talking about abundance. He's talking about, he's talking about swimming in the grace that is given to us. The abundance of God's life and grace of being able to live out of that abundance and hope. Because this is, this loving enemies, living without enemies is practicing hope because our hope is the act of trust that there's nothing that someone can take from us. This is what our hope is, is the act of trust that there's nothing that someone can take from us or deny to us that matters most that God will not raise up on the last day. And this is what, I mean, this loops in with the First Corinthians, uh, Corinthians chapter 15 reading where Paul's talking about resurrection. It's the hope. It's living now in light of the reality that there's nothing that someone can take from us or deny to us that matters most that God will not raise up on the last day. And so loving enemies, living without enemies and doing good without exchange, that's living now in light of the reality that that is the promise of the cross and the resurrection. And so this kind of boundary-erasing activity of loving enemies and, and doing good without exchange, it doesn't make our identity fuzzy. It doesn't put us into this weird, like, even though it breaks down boundaries, it doesn't make our identity fuzzy because that activity of loving uh, enemies, of living without enemies, it all emerges from the very particular hope of Jesus' cross and resurrection and what it means to live now in light of the particular hope that stems from Jesus' cross and resurrection. So this, it, this is all bigger than just uh, being nice to people uh, who are mean to us or loaning money to our brother-in-law or weird uncle or whatever, though it may include that. The conditions have changed. Jesus is opening a new way of life so that we can step out of the enemy and consumer-making machine. And what this means for us, the way that we live into this, is it means that we are free to be fully present to one another without fear. We are free to be fully present to one another without the fear of the threat of what someone could take from us, or from the need for the other person to satisfy our self-interest. But that, another way of saying that is we are free to give gifts to one another and to receive one another as a gift. The way, what, that, what it means, if I don't need, if you're not, if you can't take anything from me that matters most and I don't need anything from you, it means that I'm just free to be with you as a gift, to receive you as a gift, to give gifts. We're free to be with others exactly as they are, wherever they are, without needing to make them be in a certain way or not. When I was a kid, I had a, an arch nemesis. Any of you guys have arch nemesis? 
still. Uh, there, was this, um, there, was this, there was this kid um, who was like one of the, he, he um, had, his family was pretty well off. Um, he was the best athlete. He, had, he was the coolest kid. He had all the coolest clothes, and he was kind of a bully. Um, and he had become my arch nemesis for a number of reasons, and he would bully me a little bit. Um, and on several occasions, uh, I was convinced that I needed to fight him. Like, that I was going to fight him. In fact, we made a plan one day to meet outside the big tree after school on the playground, and we were going to throw down. And I was going to win. <laughs> and he never showed up that day. Lucky for him. <laughs> but the thing is, is like, I, I knew, I, I knew in my deep that I didn't need to fight him. I knew that I wasn't supposed to. That I was supposed to love my enemies. And I even knew, I even had this vague sense that Jesus wanted me, as a 12-year-old or 11-year-old or whatever, that Jesus wanted me to love my enemies. But what I didn't know was that I was free. That I was actually completely safe in the kingdom of God. And because I was completely safe in the kingdom of God, that this transformed my relationship to my enemies, so that actually I could live without enemies. And I could do good to those who wanted to not do good to me. And I could live without exchange. A great ex- another great example of what it looks like to live into this is um, there's this organization that uh, battles gun violence in, Nor- in Durham, North Carolina. And uh, the way that this organization started out was trying to lobby um, the politicians in order to change uh, the laws that would help mitigate the gun violence. And what they found out is when they invested most or all of their energy into lobbying the politicians uh, to change like through that system, that they actually got sucked into the enemy-making machine. And so, so they transferred their energy um, to spending time with victims, but also with perpetrators. And so what it looked like for them is, is that, that they, they heard the good news that God had actually liberated them to live without enemies. And if God had liberated them to live without enemies and with outside the system of exchange, that they could um, love and be present with even the perpetrators of violence. This is a challenging thing for our community. And this is a challenging thing for our community because we're a different kind of community. Like, we don't fit into the expectations. And so what that means is it's really easy for us to create our identity as a community as those who aren't those other people. And so I just want to name, I want to be, I want to, I've tried to be sensitive to this, and I want to continue to be sensitive to this reality. That we don't become the kind of community who exists because people know that we're not the other people but that we become the kind of people who are actively seeking to do, to do good and to love those who don't have anything to, to offer us in return, who don't, who don't uh, puff us up and, and, and uh, increase our status as a cool church in Fayetteville. That's what it looks like for us to live into this. And what that means is, is that as we do that, that we won't fit cleanly into the world's uh, enemy-defined banners. We'll stand for truth, we'll name injustice, but we won't fit cleanly into the world's uh, banners of who is in, who's out, and who's us, and who's them. And as we do this, on on a corporate basis and on a personal, personal basis, it will probably impact our own possession and pursuit of status, power, and wealth. This 
goes back into what we talked about last week. I even think about me personally. I really like it when other Christians who have a certain amount of like uh, social status in the Christian world, when they, um, when they recognize me and when they talk about me, that makes me feel really good. Right? That's that system of exchange, of relationships based on exchange. And if I bought into that, if I'm sucked into that, what that begins to do is to like shape my work. Shape what I say and what I don't say. Shape who I spend time with and who I don't spend time with. But I'm seeking to hear the good news that God has liberated me from that that system of blessing that set me free to, to live without enemies and to love beyond exchange. I'm even learning this just being present with my kids. I mean, some of you might think like, really, your kids don't have anything to offer you? I mean, they do. They're wonderful they're blessing that, and I mean that genuinely. But they also, like, uh, especially um, uh, in, in this, like, younger age, the, the things that they bring to me aren't as clear. The, the investment that I put into them, um, in, in a lot of ways, just seems like I'm, I'm just spitting in the wind. Or at least, I know that I'm not, but at least feels that way. And so I'm learning that being present with my kid is actually teaching me what it looks like to, to live into what Jesus is talking about. That I'm free to do this because Jesus has shattered the illusion of the false sources of blessing in my life. So where is God calling you? Where is the Spirit inviting you to respond today? As we pray, I invite you to pray um, this prayer. This is kind of a prayer of commitment. It's just this. Christ, I want to love others like you love me, especially in whatever. Christ, I want to love others as you love